You're listening to a special guest speaker on the Calvary Brighton podcast. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 29. And as you're flipping there, you're probably feeling, hey, wait a second, didn't, didn't we just like read this chapter a couple weeks ago? And if you're thinking that, I would just like to remind you that sometimes it's okay to read the same chapter of the Bible more than once. But in all seriousness, um, we're actually going through 1 Samuel with our college group. This chapter really like revealed like a lot of amazing truths, great discussion, and I kind of wanted to share that with you guys. So um, as you guys are flipping there, um, flipping to chapter 29, I want to first just take a second so we can all understand the background of this chapter. The first thing that's key, that's important to know about chapter 29 is the genre is the genre. The genre of not only the chapter, but also the entire book of Samuel, first and second, is a narrative, is a narrative. And when you're, and all that is, is that's just a funny word, funny Bible word for a story, for a story. So when you're reading a biblical story, when you're reading a narrative, there are two things that you must do, two steps that you must do. One, you need to understand the context. You need to understand the context. This book was written over 4,000 years ago. It's an entirely different world. You need to understand what was the world like? What was the culture like? What was society like? What was going on in the world during this time? You need to understand this cultural, historical, social context, all of it, because this is an entirely different world than the one that we live in. After you've done that, after you understand the context, the second step that you must do is you must put yourself into the shoes of the main character. If you were the main character of the story, what would you do? What would you feel? What would you think? Would you do something similar? Would you do something different? Is there something that happened in your life that you can relate to the main character with? If you were the main character, what would you do? So those are the two steps you must do. And as we're reading today's chapter, the main character in this chapter, as we will see, is David is David. So as we're reading and as we're understanding the context together, go out of your way to try to put yourself into the shoes of David. All right? So let's set the scene. Let's get some literary background. What has happened in the story so far that's important for this chapter today? So as we all know, David is in the middle of a long, prolonged period of spiritual backsliding. He's falling away from God. He, now, when David was a boy, it wasn't always like this. When David was just a boy, he was promised by God. God prophesied to him through the prophet Samuel that he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. He was promised, it was prophesied, he was anointed that he would be the next king of Israel. However, that was when David was a boy. David's now a man, and that prophecy still hasn't come to pass. He's still not the king of Israel. In fact, he's the opposite of a king. He's a fugitive. He's on the run. He's like Israel's most wanted. He is the exact opposite of a king. But he, he wasn't always, he didn't always backslide. And actually, for most of it, he was very faithful. At first, David remained steadfast and faithful when he endured the manipulation and the abuse of Saul. He was receptive to God when God told him to leave the comforts that were provided to him by Moab. 
He remained patient when he was presented with multiple opportunities to kill Saul and take his fate into his own hands. He proved to be teachable and humble and show repentance when he was corrected for his anger against Nabal. And lastly, he was even willing to take a step of faith all so that he could defend the weak, defend the defenseless when he saved the town of Keilah. That was who David was, but after years and years and years of waiting and the prophecies still not coming to pass, David finally, it says in chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, verse 1, it says that David said in his heart, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Although David started off strong, he finally gave in and gave up. David gave up and he joined the Philistines. Now, at this point in the story, he's actually now climbed the ranks as a Philistine soldier. He's been promoted to the position as King Achish's bodyguard. He's climbed the ranks, but as he was climbing the ranks, he was actually living a double life. You see, he would be one part Israelite, but an equal part Philistine. As he, was, as he would be commanded to attack Israelite towns by King Achish, he would in actuality take his soldiers and attack towns that were enemies of the Israelites. And he got, he got away with it too, but he didn't do it without being brutal. He got away with it by leaving no witnesses. Chapter 27, verse 9 says, David would leave neither man nor woman alive in every town that he attacked. He left no witnesses. He was willing to be brutal so that he could cover his tracks. He, David had gotten very good and, if I might add, very comfortable with living a double life, with living two lives simultaneously, living the life of an Israelite and living the life of a Philistine. He had gotten very, very good at that. Now, David's double life was especially important when you remember the historical context that this book takes place in. During this time, your citizenship was just as much of an indicator of your political and governmental identity as it was your spiritual identity. Your citizenship was just as much of an indicator of your political identity as it was your spiritual identity. So for instance, let's say we lived during this time. You were a foreigner of Israel, and you wanted to become an Israelite citizen. To do so, Israel's immigration policy, if you will, was that you had to do two things to be an Israelite citizen. One, you must make sacrifices to God and honor the holy days. And two, you must follow and obey the Torah. If you can't tell, the requirements for following God, period, regardless if you're an Israelite or not, were the exact same as becoming an Israelite citizen. They were one and the same. And David himself knows this. That's why in chapter 26, verse 19, David says, after his second opportunity to kill Saul, he says, now therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, May he accept an offering, but if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. See, what David is saying here is he's equating being driven out of Israel 
as being the same as being told to worship other gods. In David's mind, those were the same thing. And so David wasn't just a double agent. He wasn't just like an Israelite spy living in, in, with the Philistines. No, he was spiritually torn, spiritually living two identities at once. He's much like the church of Laodicea that we read about in the book of Revelation. And you want to know what God says about them? God says in Revelation 3.15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, there is no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. People say lukewarm, the term lukewarm Christian a lot, but there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. There are only lukewarm people who are going to be spit out of God's mouth. David, by being neither hot nor cold, by, by being both an Israelite and a Philistine, by living two lives at once, has found himself on a path to spiritual destruction. That is where we find David, the main character, as we start today's chapter. So if you'll read with me in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Now, let's, at first this seems like one of those verses that you just kind of read, skip past, and then keep on reading. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it would have anything important, right? But it's actually, as we dig a little deeper, it actually, you have to ask yourself, why would the author of Samuel go out of their way to highlight where these two armies are gathered? For one, the battle itself doesn't take place for two more chapters. And two, it, it takes place tw over 20 miles from either location. So why did, the, why did the author choose now to highlight where the two armies are gathered? Well, it's, we have to understand, we have to have some literary context. The Bible, being Eastern literature, being written 4,000 years ago, sometimes, actually oftentimes, uses an Eastern poetic literary device called a parallelism. Now, that sounds crazy, but its parallelisms are actually very simple. It's, it's when a biblical author references something that happened earlier in the book or earlier in the Bible in order to reveal a truth about the current story that you're reading. Now, so I'll give you an example to help you guys understand. Uh, at the beginning of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which is written to a primarily Jewish audience who would have been very familiar with Old Testament scriptures, specifically very familiar with the Torah, begins, the book of Luke begins by telling you a story about an old couple who have been barren their whole lives. They've tried to have kids, and now they're too old to have kids. They can't. They've given up hope. They've lost faith. But they are promised by an angel that they will have a child, but initially they don't believe. However, they go on to have a child, and that child ends up fulfilling a prophecy by God, a promise by God. If that sounds familiar to you, it sounded very familiar to Luke's Jewish audience. They would have, would have been thinking, like, ding, 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 this is Abraham and Sarah. This is an exact parallel. This is what happened to them. Luke would be telling his Jewish audience that just like how God did something new with a new covenant and a new way to bring salvation to the world through Abraham and his son Isaac, God was about to do something similar, bring a new covenant, a new way of saving the world through Jesus. 
So similarly, the author of Samuel has a specific reason why he's highlighting where these two armies are gathered. And the reason is, is that we've actually already heard of a situation that's almost eerily similar to this in Samuel. All the way back at the beginning of Samuel, at chapter 4, we've already heard of a battle that took place between the Israelites and the Philistines, where the Philistines were gathered at Aphek. Now, if this doesn't sound familiar to you, and ho- hopefully it does, because this was one of the chapters of Samuel that I taught, but if it doesn't, that's okay. I'll forgive you, you know. I'll give you a quick reminder anyways. In chapter 4, the Israelites were about to go into battle against the Philistines. The Israelites had at this point lost their fear of the Lord. They viewed God as some sort of genie in a bottle who will just do whatever they want. Whatever they wanted, God wanted. It was as simple as that to them. So because they didn't fear God, they took the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne on earth, and they brought it with them into the battle. However, they ended up losing the battle. The Philistines won, and they captured the Ark. See, this was a battle where the Israelites, the Israelites didn't just lose the battle, they lost their fear of the Lord. The Israelites didn't just lose the battle, they lost their fear of the Lord. So the author of Samuel is highlighting a battle that's eerily similar to this in order to reveal the truth to us that just like in that battle where the main character, the Israelites, lost their fear of the Lord, in this chapter, the main character, David, it's going to lose his fear of the Lord as well. So let's continue reading in verse 2. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? So we were introduced to some new characters, these Philistine lords, these Philistine commanders. Now, who are these guys? I thought the Achish was the king, right? Who are these guys bossing the king around? That doesn't make any sense, right? So we need to understand some historical context about who these guys were. The, we need to understand the Philistine governmental structure. We need to understand how they structured their government. The Philistine ruled their kingdom with five kings, all of which who had equal power and ruled the nation with a system of checks and balances over one another. So these five kings, they ruled over the five major Philistine towns, that being Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. And these five kings, they, they, Achish was one of them. He was the king of Gath. But these Philistine lords and commanders, these were the other four Philistine kings. And so Achish is trying to plead David's case, saying, no, like, I trust him. David's never deserted me. He's an honest man. But they won't listen. They veto him. We have to ask ourselves, why? David has a proven military track record, both with the Israelites and the Philistines. And Achish himself is vouching for him. Why were these Philistine kings so quick 
to say no, to say, no, David can't serve with us. Well, as we all remember, earlier in 1 Samuel, in chapter 14, after Jonathan's surprise attack against the Philistines, uh, Israelite soldiers who were fighting for the Philistines turned against them in the middle of the battle. We read that here in chapter 14, verse 21, which says, Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So these Philistine kings were thinking, like, fool me once, shame on you. But fool me twice, shame on me. Or as George W. Bush would say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me, can't get fooled again. You know, that's what they were thinking. <laughs> they were thinking, no, this is not happening again. We've learned our lesson. That turned the tides of that battle. That is not going to happen in this battle. So let's see how David reacts as we begin reading in verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong with you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So here we'll see in a way that David is, there's something deeper going on here. David is being reminded of who he once was. The Philistine kings are saying, isn't this the David? Isn't this David the guy that they sing songs about? The, the song that goes something like how they killed tens of thousands of us? No way. But again, there's something deeper going on. David is being reminded of who he once was, but who he isn't anymore. They say, is this not David? Well, the David that was standing before them was a shell of the David that the Israelites sang songs about. He was a shell of the man who they sang songs about. David had long ago, he had been in the Philistines, with the Philistines for over a year at this point. He had long ago abandoned the hope of the calling that the Lord had placed upon him. The, the calling and the promise that he would be king of Israel. It had been a long time since David had been anointed king. Like back then, the David that they sang songs about, back then David had so much passion, so much zeal, so much fervor for the Lord. When the Holy Spirit first came upon him, it drove him to be so faithful that he did amazing things. Like he took on a giant. He turned the other cheek. He stood up for the defenseless. And he blessed and showed mercy to his enemies. But that's the David of old. Isn't that like so many of us? Like when we first accept Jesus into our life, when we first have God be the Lord over our life, we're like, we just can't contain ourselves. We're raw. We're passionate. We're faithful. Like when we first accept God into our lives, we're like Will Ferrell and Elf. We're saying, I'm in love and I don't care who knows. That's like us. We can't be contained. But over time, the distractions of life, 
kind of erode on our once vibrant faith. And it's slow, but there's a day that we, if we look back at ourselves and we can't even recognize who that person is. Like, who was that? Because that's not me now. That is what David is going through now. And although this is the version of David that only lives in the past, this is the old, the old David, the David of old, the, it's the Philistine commanders of all people who see David for who he really is, for who he really is deep down. It is obvious to them, clear as day to them, that despite David's best efforts, he would never be one of them. Despite, no matter what David may try, what he might say, he would never be a Philistine. He wasn't one of them. So here David is. He's faced with a decision. It's almost as if these Philistine kings have placed a mirror in front of him, but he doesn't recognize the person he sees in it. What is David going to do? The question he must ask himself is, who is he? Who is he going to choose to be? Is he an Israelite or is he a Philistine? Which is it? It's time for him to choose. Will this harsh and blunt reminder that deep, deep down in the core of David's being, he would never be a Philistine, would that reminder be enough to bring him to his knees in repentance? Would he, much like the prodigal son, wake up finally and realize how much of a spiritual mess that he's made of himself? and come running back to his father? Will David finally cry out to God, ask for mercy and forgiveness, and return to being the David of old, the David they sang songs about? What will David do? David has been living a spiritual double life. He's been living two identities at once, and it's time for him to pick who the real David is. So let's find out what he does and what he picks in verse 8. David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. And David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David cries out. He pleads, but not to God. He pleads to Achish. He cries out to the Philistine. He says, no, I am a Philistine. What have I done to show you different? I am. Not only am I a Philistine, but I'm willing to fight your enemies. Now, we have to understand the importance of this. The one thing that David wasn't willing to do, the one line that he would not cross was that he wouldn't attack an Israelite. That was his one thing. Every other time he had been asked to attack an Israelite, he didn't. But now David is willing to give up the last shred of the old David that he was holding on to. He's willing to abandon that too, cash in his chips, and go all in and become a Philistine. And we have to be crystal clear with what David means here. We cannot confuse what he's saying. Who are Achish's enemies? They're the Israelites. 
David is saying that he is willing and wanting to take his sword and use it to kill God's people. That's what David is saying. And in addition to that, he is willing to take his soldiers, who we are told back in chapter 22, are people who are in distress, in debt, and bitter in soul. These desperate, needy people. And he's not going to lead them towards God, but he's saying that he's going to lead them into battle against God's people. David was ready to leave everything behind, including his old self, and irreversibly commit to being a Philistine forever. And although David didn't end up going into battle, and although God would in the next chapter bring David to repentance, in this chapter, what's happening here is not repentance. What's happening here is that it's, it, God is forcefully dragging David by his feet out of spiritual destruction and saving David from himself. God is forcefully dragging David out of spiritual destruction and saving him from himself. Now, some have claimed, people who are much smarter than me have claimed that David's real unspoken intentions were to never go to, go to battle with, against the Philistines or against the Israelites at all, that that was his real unspoken intentions. And they point to things like how Achish says stuff like, as the Lord lives, and you, David is as blameless in my sight as an angel of God, as proof that David was actually evangelizing to Achish. However, I would argue that this is reading something into the Bible that the Bible itself does not say. Being a narrative, the Bible doesn't tell us what David's thoughts were, only his words and his actions. We only know David's words and his actions. And as for Achish, it was actually common for this time when you're using covenantal language to refer to the opposing party's gods. So I'll give you an example from elsewhere in Scripture. In Genesis 31, Laban and Jacob make a covenant with one another. Now, Laban worships Canaanite gods. He doesn't worship God. He doesn't worship Yahweh. He worships Canaanite gods. And he says in, cha in chapter 31, verse 49, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. So this type of language is very common. So we're at the end of the story. We've read all the verses. And what do we do with it? What do we do with this story? It's a story that's somehow just as hopeless as it is relatable. And that's not a good combination. Hopeless and relatable. I don't think we've ever watched a Disney movie that's both hopeless and relatable as its two main themes. Like, what do we do with this? Like, different parts of David's story are so relatable. They've been relatable to me. For some of us, maybe we can identify with being lukewarm, being one foot in, one foot out for God. For others, we may know that deep, deep down, when it comes down to it, we want to keep sin in our lives because we like it. Maybe we're like the rich young ruler who's willing to follow every law except for one. Maybe there's one thing that we just can't let go of. For others of us, maybe we've been a Christian for so long that slowly, slowly over time, so slow we didn't even notice it, the faith that once consumed our lives, once consumed our hearts, our minds, our entire beings, 
now only consumes our Sundays. I've been able to relate to all three of these before. So the question, if, and if you're sitting here, and if, you've been, if, you're, if you can relate to any different aspects of David's life, the question that you must ask yourself is the same question that Davis, David asked himself. Who are you going to be? Who are you? Are you going to choose to be of the world or in the world? Are you going to choose to be an enemy of God or a bondservant of God? Are you going to fully, completely get off the fence and give your whole life to God? Who are you? Who are you going to choose to be? That's the question you must ask yourself. But with that said, there's something else that we need to remember as well. If there's one thing clear from this chapter, it's that although the only mention of God is out of Achish's lips, God was in the background of David's life the entire time. The entire time. God was saving him and ultimately protecting him from himself. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I don't want to be lukewarm, but I feel like I kind of am, but I don't want to be. I, don't, I want to let go of this sin that my flesh desperately wants to hold on to. I want to. I want to have a faith that endures. I don't want to have a faith that grows old and fades. I want to have a faith that's built on the rock of Jesus Christ. If that's you, and if you're thinking that, then please remember that God's grace was sufficient for David, and it's sufficient for you too. God's grace is sufficient. The same God that saved David from himself can and will do the same for you. I want to challenge you and encourage you to allow God to move through your life and save you, even if it requires saving you from yourself. Let's praise God for his mercy and grace to us. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, as we come before you in your word and as we gather together as your body, I pray, Lord, that you, you change our lives, God, that you, that, that you are our Lord, you are our King, that we give our whole lives wholly and completely to you, God. God, I, I praise you for your grace and for your mercy. We praise you for being, being so loving towards us, even though we don't deserve it, God. We praise you for saving us a lot of times from ourselves, God. God, I pray for myself and for everyone here that we become people that are all in for you. That aren't one foot in, one foot out, but that we get off of this path of destruction and then we get towards the path of righteousness and we follow you, God. Lord, I pray that you transform us from within and I thank you for, I thank you for allowing us to be convicted and encouraged by your word today. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.